we have learned certainly as an architectural practice, we're all about creativity, but we are also a business. And in that business, we need to make progressive decisions that actually push the goals forward as opposed to having to go too much in a circular condition. So I completely agree with your point. You know, phases are a bit of a superimposition on what we do, right? But those, that structure, I think, is one that we just rely on for the larger goal, which is to make those progressive decisions of all sorts, you know, not just design decisions, but decisions on budget and project program, et cetera. So, you know, I think that's really at the core of what we do in our process, in the creative process. How do we evolve solutions in a way that leverages creativity, creates these, you know, unique bespoke solutions that have big impact, but do that in a progressive way so that we're constantly pushing towards the goal. Welcome to Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, we're excited to be joined by Molly McGowan and Thomas Wong of Inead Architects for a fireside chat about how civic architecture can inspire change. Molly has served as management partner for many of the firm's complex new construction and renovation projects across a range of sectors, including education, performing and visual arts, research, and commercial mixed use. Throughout the planning, budgeting, design, and construction process, her management style fosters a collaborative environment marked by open communication, trust, and shared vision. We're very excited to talk about those topics. Thomas Wong is a design partner at NEAD Architects. Thomas has provided design leadership on a broad range of building and program typologies, from museums to academic buildings and inpatient hospitals. The diversity of typologies speaks to the range of his design approach. Thomas treats each design problem as a unique set of opportunities and issues that lead to a distinct, specific, and authentic solution. With that, thank you very much for joining us today, Molly and Thomas. And as always, thank you, Sylvia, for joining us as well. Indeed, thank you so much for having us, George and Sylvia. We're really happy to be here. And thanks to Monograph for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you both. I think a good place to start is help to set the stage of like any ad. If you can give a quick sort of rundown, maybe a little bit towards its history, but also how it's set up today. I think that would provide great context for the conversation. Sure, absolutely. And maybe I'll start off and hand off to Molly, but our practice has been around since about 1963. We were formerly known as Polshev Partnership, changed our name in 2010 when Jim Polshev retired to ENIAD. ENIAD was a purposeful name for us because ENIAD means group of nine. And more than anything else, not just the number, it's the issue of being a group that really is at the core of our ethos. That group is all about dialogue and exchange. It's about the plurality of voices. It's about using each other to push each other to go to new places, to explore new things, to make bigger impact. Currently, we're about 210-ish in New York. And this is the mothership where we've had our practice from the, since the very beginning. And for about 10 years now, we've had a practice in Shanghai, which is now about 35 people. So that's basically how we have evolved over the years. And maybe Molly can talk a little bit more about the structure of the firm. Sure. So we currently have nine partners, as Tom mentioned. We then have a structure to the firm, which is largely based on projects. So we collaborate 
around our projects, but our senior staff actually collaborates across a number of projects. And to help organize the expertise that we have here, we created a number of, we call them centers. So there's centers around typologies and building types. And that really is a way for us to aggregate our expertise within a center and make sure that it's disseminated across all those project types. We also have a number of, we call them sort of our help desks, but really there are superpowers. So it's our applied computing group, it's our model shop, it's sustainability, it's interiors, it's marketing, it's HR. All of these groups are what keep us moving on a daily basis. And what we try to do is make sure that every project not only plugs into a center, but it also plugs into these areas of expertise so that all of our projects can benefit from these. And this is something I think that sort of unique for Tom and I is when we both joined the firm, I've been here 25 years. Tom has been here almost 30 years now. We were a much smaller practice. And at that point in time, when you have 60 people, you can be much more nimbler, right? You just walk down the hallway, you touch base, you can grab information. So as we've grown over the last 25, 30 years, we've really had to understand how can you take that organic way of collaborating and create a system so that when a new employee comes in, they know that they too can access that resource without having to know that person. And I think that's really important because in this day and age, in the last two years, there's been so much conversation about equity, right? How do you access information? Who has access to that information? And unless you do it in a transparent way, I think people would feel that it might be opaque and you can't, you can't reach it. So that's been something that we've been committed to from the start. When you were growing from 60 to now 200 plus, was it when you added a typology or were you growing on like specific projects? It was a little bit of both. So we were very fortunate to land a couple of very large projects, which you immediately need to grow. But then we did make a couple of very strategic growth into a couple of markets in the last couple of years. Three of which, one is Shanghai and the commercial mixed reuse that we've been able to do there. But we also, when we recognized we went to Shanghai, it was a very opportune time where we said we need to be able to take our core typology to China. And it's exactly when they started investing in cultural and civic spaces. So we were able to do that. The second actually has been around healthcare and healthcare in the industry here has been a growth market for us within New York City. And then also the commercial mixed use here in United States, we joined forces with one of our partners who had that portfolio. What's interesting is that over the course of our history, it's actually been very steady growth. A lot of firms, especially in New York, I think uh, during the Great Recession of 2008, did have to contract. But it was, as exactly as Molly is saying, it was at that point that we had a, a big new healthcare job for NYU Langone Health. And frankly, during that three-year period, 2008 to 2011, we actually grew. So it's been a very steady growth over the past, especially the past 25, 30 years. With those decisions of, of, you know, those very deep strategic decisions about moving to Shanghai, opening up an office there, and then also moving into healthcare, how does the firm proactively think about that strategy? You know, we've seen it where like, sometimes there's a core team, a leadership team that, basically is under trying to dig deeper into what the market, where, where the market's going. I'm curious if you can maybe reflect a little bit on like what prompts those changes. Like if someone were listening today, like how would they know to make that decision in general? That's a great question, George. And um, let me just start off the, a lot of the strategy has been coupled with opportunity. So specifically, we had always had some sites on international work, specifically Asia, but the opportunity to have someone join us, Peter Schubert, who used to be a partner at KPF, was also a partner at RMGM, had a lot of international experience, and he joined us in 20, 
12. And, you know, a small subset of partners really tackled that as a strategic initiative to go to Asia and have built it up from there. And, you know, while I think the partnership as a whole, currently we're nine, we discuss all components of our practice collectively. We certainly rely on subsets and trust each other enough so that the certain initiatives are led by smaller subsets of partners. I think the same is true of healthcare as well, just to finish that, because we, we you know, did a, a couple of healthcare jobs in the early aughts, but it was really a small job for NYU that led to a much larger job. And we, at the end of the day, have done over a million square feet at NYU Langone. And that's because I think the quality of our staff and the amazing things that happen here have led to that trust and relationship of that client. Because um, you have so many different typologies in your firm, and since you've both worked on so many different ones, how you can borrow some solutions that have worked well or borrow from each other and collaborate, and how that relates to the structure of your centers with these um, help desks. Sure. So I have a great example where a number of years ago, we got a phone call from Apple, and they said, would you come out and meet with us? And he said, we don't do retail. Why do you want to talk to us? And they talked to us because they were rethinking what a retail store is. And at the core of it was the notion that they wanted to create a civic community space. And that is at the core of what we do. So we went and we worked with Apple for a number of years, realized a building in Scottsdale, Arizona, which was not only at the heart of creating an outdoor space, civic space, but it also had really high technical. We created this roof, which was just something that was an amazing experience for us to be able to do. And it really demonstrated the capacity of not only our applied computing group, but also our technical capacity as, as architects. Fast forward a number of years and the head of design leaves Apple to start a new company that rethinks how you deliver residential buildings. And again, he came back to us and we said, okay, we've, we've done residential buildings. It's not at the core of our practice. He said, I know, but I like the way you think. And I, I like the way you borrow from other typologies. And I want to partner with you. And we've been partnering with them now in the last three years on a new startup. And uh, we have our first building under construction. It's all about leveraging componentization of elements in order to not only build a building faster, but also through BIM to be able to literally develop buildings in a way that we've never been able to do before. We all joke about being able to push a button and outcome a set of documents. And with this system, we're actually now approaching being able to deliver a project essentially faster than our agencies are able to actually approve a project. So it's been a really interesting development with this one client over the last seven to eight years. Molly, that's really a great example, I think, of a lot of our clients who really appreciate the completeness of our staff and our architects because of the way we're organized. Although we have centers, which are really embodied expertise in a set of individuals, we are frankly not studio-based typologically. And we do that purposefully, not only because of this issue of cross-fertilization and transfer, but also because it just builds much better architects to be able to experience a whole range of different scales, different typologies, different locales, is really you know, the kind of dream training of an architect. And, and frankly, even as partners practicing, I think we still really crave and 
and get excited about that diversity in the projects that we work on. I'm super fascinated by your collaboration with this startup. You know, obviously we're we're somewhat of a startup ourselves and we're always interested about like what changes when two different companies come together to work on something, right? Like what 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 transfers over? I'm curious, how has working with this startup changed or influenced the way you think about design after working with that startup, whether that's productization or, you know, you mentioned, uh, Molly, a little bit about the, you know, the realization, like we're actually, we're moving faster than agencies can actually even <laughs> work with it. I mean, it's just, does it rethink the delivery right. model in general for you? And what are some of the insights that you've picked up on that are changing the way you work? So the thing that's most exciting for us is, if I can give a short answer here. So as a management partner, I do a lot of contracts and there's a lot of risk mitigation and making sure we're not going to get into trouble. And our lawyers tell us, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. They took one look at this thing and they were like, wait, how do we approach this? Because we were rethinking how we were going to deliver architecture and design. And one of the things that we've been really excited in, whether it be integrated project delivery, where it's a tripart contract between a contractor, the entire team, designer and owner. So the, the, the risk is shared and the reward is shared. This is something that a couple clients have been able to do. We have been able to do it in a couple instances and it works sometimes, it doesn't work other times, but it goes back to why did we all enter architecture, right? So I love to build, I love to make things. I don't wanna spend hours litigating contracts or hours coming up with work plans. I wanna just do it. And so one of the things that's really exciting about a startup is thinking about how you can rethink those processes so that you can get back to doing what we all love to do. Thomas, just to pick your brain a little bit, has anything from the, the design perspective itself or the design process, whether from like the, the even thinking about phases, right? I mean, we have a lot of conversations here about how the phases in general, if you just take from AIA, it's kind of like this applied process that doesn't always map over to reality or to the opportunity because let's face it, since, since those phases were designed and developed, all the underlying assumptions around technology, around everything, processes in general, have been swept away. They've just changed. And so I'm curious for, for you, strategically thinking about design, like does that, did you take away anything from it that's going to persist? Well, I, you know, I think the structure of the way projects evolve through their schedule and phases and level of development is really about a process of decision-making, right? We have learned certainly as an architectural practice, we're all about creativity, but we are also a business. And in that business, we need to make progressive decisions that actually push the goals forward as opposed to having to go too much in a circular condition. So I completely agree with your point. You know, phases are a bit of a superimposition on what we do, right? But those, that structure, I think, is one that we just rely on for the larger goal, which is to make those progressive decisions of all sorts, you know, not just design decisions, but decisions on budget and project program, et cetera. So, you know, I think that's really at the core of what we do in our process. In the creative process, how do we evolve solutions in a way that leverages creativity, creates these, you know, unique bespoke solutions that have big impact? but do that in a progressive way so that we're constantly pushing towards the goal. Building and building is often one of the most expensive things any of our clients will ever do. 
it's also one of the biggest endeavors, right? It takes three, four, five years longer for really complex projects to realize something. So they look at it and if they've never done it before, they can get really nervous, right? I'm signing a check essentially for, and what if we get it wrong and how do I make right decisions? So I also think that the phases really help a client to understand, okay, I get it. I don't have to decide that now. I can focus on this right now. Let's get this right and move on. And I have to say that in my years of practice, I've been really happy to see how much our clients are taking that more seriously. And I don't know if it's because of oversight or risk or falling markets or what, but there really is a commitment to staying on track. And one of the first questions we often get in an interview is, so what's the biggest thing we should be concerned about? And we'll say to our clients, your own decision-making capability, because if you can make decisions, but before you even make decisions, if you can be clear about your goals and don't worry, we'll help you define those goals. If you can be clear about your goals and your vision, we can set out a process for you that will feel comfortable and have you making the decisions at the right point in a project. So it feels manageable. So at the end, you don't feel like you've made a mistake, missed an opportunity or, or felt like you've made a wrong decision. I've heard that in a previous webinar is actually one of our best practice webinars about how to start your own practice. So this is an entirely different scale. This is like a very small firm and just uh, how do you reach clients? But once again, it's, this is the biggest decision a client may have to make the biggest thing that they will ever buy. So it's nice to hear that. I hear this a lot that like the decisions we make and how we manage things, whether you're a small firm or a very large firm, you still have to be transparent and communicate with your client. Love to hear a little more, Molly, about how you manage all of these, this process. Transparency seems to be a very big theme here. And also, how do you find the opportunities for the civic architecture that you um, are so strong in? Because maybe that wasn't in the client's mind in the first place, but then you find these opportunities along the way. And how do you bring that into a project that without them worrying about fee or things like that, or time or schedule? I'm going to let you answer the second part of that question. I'll answer the first part. So managing a process is, I like to say, first and foremost, no one wants to be managed, period. I don't want to be managed. You don't want to be managed. No one wants to be managed. So the first thing we try to do is we say, this isn't about management. This is actually about setting goals and understanding your vision. If we do that collectively, we get to hear from our clients what it is they want to do, but we bring our expertise as to how to be able to deliver on that vision. So then we set a process. So it's, again, not management. It's a process. And we have to make sure that at the core of that process, there's trust. I can't possibly know personally, myself, everyone on the client side, but I know that my team, our team, can know everybody on the client side. So Tom has to develop a very close relationship with the university architect. My project manager has to develop a very close relationship with the project manager, their counterpart on the client side. So if we can collectively build that trust, what it means that is that when we're not in the room, they're all the advocates for the building as much as we're the advocates for the building. So if we can build those relationships, then we'll get the thing built. And we, we have many projects, whether it's a 10,000 square foot museum or a 600,000 square foot lab building and a 10,000 square foot museum, the client's much smaller, but it's still that complexity, right? You have the, the guy who's been running the grounds for 25 years and he doesn't want to know that there's a New York architect showing up who's going to tell him how to do things, right? So you have to build the trust with him just as much as you do with the museum director. But Tom, civic space, how do we find it? How do we build it? Well, and then let me pick up on that. It's, it's so important to have Molly and her role or the management partner that's in that role for me to partner with. Because I think as we build the relationship with these clients and the trust, 
it allows us to help open their eyes to the possibilities, right? And this right. is really the key to the idea of architecture as a civic enterprise. As we all have say, said, you know, this is potentially the largest expense or investment that any client will make. So they're focused very much on their needs, right? But it has always been a core ethos of this practice, which is that buildings are part of a larger whole. They are part of cities, environments, neighborhoods, communities, and every building is participants in that. And therefore, one of the core ethos and philosophies of our design approach is really that we have ultimately this responsibility to shape that, not just shape our clients' work, our clients' needs and goals, but to be a positive force and a positive participant in that larger structure, right? Whether that be, you know, cities like New York or even structures of the natural world, you know, as a complete counterpoint to that. That's something that we try to bring to every project, to each and every project is, is to, through the relationship, through that level of trust, help our clients realize that this is sure about meeting their goals, but it is also an incredible opportunity to make impact. And frankly, that impact, you know, hopefully positive, is going to actually help meet their goals in a much larger way, especially for institutions. You know, institutions are very much about integrating with their constituents and a positive contribution to that larger structure is a way to cast their identity in a farther reach. So an example of knowing the vision and the context within which your client is operating and within which we need to be delivering a project, I like to use the example of a, a theater production. So if I'm hired to do a Broadway show or if I'm hired to do an off-off-Broadway production, those are two very different constituents, right? Broadway show better be high production, high value, full costume, lighting, design, the whole nine yards, because people are going for a spectacle. At the core of it, it still has to be a darn good production, right? It comes with a spectacle. And off-off Broadway, they don't have those budgets. They don't have those production values. And yet, they need to deliver something equally impactful to their audience, knowing that they, in that instance, it might be someone who's looking for something a little bit smaller off. Is it Vanguard? Is it something that no one has seen before? You're taking chances, you're taking risks. So you need to understand the context within your client is working for because you can't deliver a Broadway production to someone who's off off Broadway. It's just the audience is going to look at it and say, why did you spend your money on that? I'm, I'm fascinated by tying that to this idea of trust within the team. How do you align with your team members to build that trust about the direction in which you're going? So like to know whether this is like an off-Broadway off production versus a Broadway production, whether it's all about story and narrative versus like get your money's worth a sort of uh, glitz and glamour. Are there ways in which you think about or structure the career track of employees in some sense of like helping to identify either through identifying those people that can be trusted best with this? Like, what does that look like internally so that you can feel like, you know, you don't have to be in the room necessarily to ensure that the, that from any ed side, you're all aligned on like the outcomes. The archetypal, you know, any ed 
architect. And, and Molly and I sort of grew up and came through the firm in this way is that that person fills in wherever there is a void. So it's not exactly. so much about me or Molly saying, you do this and this. And if you do that, then I trust you and you're, you're doing great. Well, it's that too, but it's also someone who's got all the lights on and is able to see the entire landscape of how the project is progressing and is proactive enough to say, that's not getting solved. Let me go over there. Or, you know, Molly, come with me and tell me what I should do here. So that kind of proactivity is the kind of archetypal Enneadian. And that is the person that we inevitably most trust. And that's inevitably our partnership is based on that, right? The partners are all about that kind of proactive engagement. And I, I want to underscore, though, what Tom is saying, because this is sometimes missed. It's someone identifying the opportunity and then reaching to the resources to make it done. We're not silos. It doesn't work well when someone sees an opportunity or a, a hole and they just go and plug it because it's like, wait, what happened? Come back here. You know, come talk to us and make sure that you draw upon the resources of the firm and you, you bring it. So we have regular project management meetings at the team level, the senior team level. We have it across different projects. And it's a, they're some of the best meetings we have because it's like, I'm having this issue. How do, how do you solve it over there? Or you're kidding. I had the same issue last week. This is what we did. And so we really, the sum of the parts is really always greater than the individual. And it's never more true than in delivering architecture because it's just, they're so complex, our projects that we really need to rely on each other and our individual superpowers in order to be able to deliver something. I'm curious how these qualities will show up um, when you staff your projects. How do you think about the team that you're putting together and how they complement each other maybe. And then I'm also curious that when you hire for your company, how do you find this quality that of someone who can do the work, but also will be a great team player? So hiring is an art form. I have to say our partner, Kevin McClurkin heads that up, but he has a, a group of people supporting him on it. I'll be honest. We hire smart people. And we hire people who we feel can participate in the community and, and give back to the community. And then they'll find their place. The, the benefit of being a 200 plus firm is that there's always a need for something, right? That said, we do have strategic hires around different areas of expertise. In putting together the teams, some of it is pure opportunity. Who's coming available? We usually identify the senior leadership first, who's going to be the senior designer. There's a person who's an expert in labs, we're going to put them on this project. And then from there, we build from that to fill out the other pieces and to complement it. Our teams grow. As most people know, you start out with a small team. It grows to a very large team during the documentation phase, and it shrinks back down again during construction. We make a very concerted effort to make sure that people who start the job finish the job. So you might be the senior designer, you might not be doing all the construction shop drawings, but you're going to be the one who might do the punch list. You're going to go out and you're going to see the mock-ups. You are going to be there when the, when the building is finished and it's open. So it's an art form. We don't always get it right. Sometimes we have to make adjustments, but we usually try to solve it, not by taking someone off a team, but by augmenting it. So we might say to someone, you know what? I actually think that Greg could help you detail that because Greg knows everything about that building typology or everything about that wall system. And why don't you just go talk to him so that we're training people to help them fill those voids that might, that might be occurring on a team. It, it is a challenge forming teams, especially because 
the studio is very fluid, right? Without this kind of studio structure, it's one studio. So, you know, Molly has some staff who work with her regularly, although not only exclusively. And, you know, a lot of the team members also float between partners. So that's that's a challenging thing to coordinate, but I we feel like it is so much better. It's better for our staff. It's also, I think, more enriching for us as team leaders to have that kind of exposure of the cross screen of, of everyone in the office. Molly, I'm curious about your background. Uh, we, did, we didn't go through it in the description, but how did you drift over or, or maybe not drift, but decide that you wanted to become more on the management side, handling operational initiatives within the firm? How did that come, come about? Maybe Tom should answer this question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, can I, we all, I'll we, brag for you if you want. Yeah, yeah, you could. Well, let me start. So we all show up here as designers, right? I came here right out of Columbia Architecture School. I was going to come here as a designer, and then I showed up, and I just started seeing holes that needed plugging, right? And I'll say it, right? No one goes into architecture to become a manager. They just don't. You come into architecture to build things, to make things, to create things. But I started to see that, we could create better if we had a better plan. So work backwards from the deadline. Hey, if we got this, this, and this, and hey, maybe we don't have to, you know, we can, we can actually get that into this set as opposed to missing it and then it's not estimated and then we don't get to get it because the client didn't think they had bought it. So it's sort of as simple as that. But I have to say it was also the, the benefit of being in management here at ENEAD, Polshek First, now ENEAD, is we are all still designers, right? So one of my clients for the last 25 years is NYU. Tom and I are doing our second building for NYU together. I've done 10 buildings at NYU. So just the other day, I sent him a sketch. I said, hey, you know when Joe, who's the vice provost, mentioned the detail? This is the detail he was talking about. And you know, so we have this history and we have all of this baked into our own work. So I can bring those design ideas from other projects to Tom and Tom be like, oh, you're absolutely right. Let's try that. So the management is something that I think is really just, we all gravitate towards the things that really make us happy. Don't get me started on Excel spreadsheets. Like I love an Excel spreadsheet because you can organize the world and you can, you know, you can make sense out of things. And Tom's laughing, but you know, there's, there's a beauty in that kind of partnership. So. She's not, let me brag a little bit for you. Okay. She's not only an Excel pro. Molly is the smoothest person and incredibly smart. So she is so articulate that, you know, while the rest of us had our heads down, Molly was there gaining the trust of everyone. And I think that is really one of the key qualities that first with the team, the partners, the clients that has led her to this leadership position. You know, I've had to learn how to speak intelligently about architecture, you know, because my head was always down. But I mean, Molly's just a natural in that and people trust her implicitly. And I think that is, you know, why as a complement between us and our roles, but also as just personalities and individuals, it really works. It's very successful. So Tom, thank you very much for that. I want to give a nod though to the role. Yeah. Well, thank you. But it's also sometimes being a little bit in the background. And I only say that because we're a design first firm, right? So we walk into a room they're hiring Tom. They're hiring one of our other design partners. And it allows me to 
be in a position of saying, okay, I can listen more than Tom can sometimes because I don't always have to be the one who's presenting. I don't always have to be the one who's focused. I mean, it's not easy being a really creative brain sometimes, right? And so to be able to, as Tom was saying earlier, look at the whole landscape, I have the capacity to do that. And I think that's one of the reasons why I focus on the trust aspect and being able to build that with the teams and the clients. I love that uh, as a, this ability to be the person that's actually observing the real meeting that's happening, not the mm-hmm. meeting in which people are talking at each other or talking, you're able to see who's talking, who's the one that's talking the most out of the other side of the table. And all that informs then like the, the debrief later, right? After the meeting that's like, hey, I actually think this person is the one that we need to be building more trust with because the objection at the end of the day is going to come from them potentially, right? It's like, seeing that play out. That's awesome. I'm going to give a little secret. Everyone hates Zoom calls, right? Hmm. But guess what Zoom is really good at? I can be looking at Sylvia right now and she has no idea I'm watching her facial expression. But if I'm in a meeting with a client of eight people and I have to turn my head to look at someone's facial expression, like I'm able to gain so much more information because I can look at people's faces without them knowing that I'm looking at them. It's a really interesting thing. I mean, of course, that only works if you actually have the screens on, the cameras on, but it's interesting. I love hearing you two talk about how you work together. And I'd love to hear a little more, like what does your typical day or week look like? Because hearing how that you enable each other to do better work is really important to highlight that you can't have a bunch of smart, talented people in a room, but unless they work well together. So it's that secret that enabling teams to work together is I would like to hear more and like from your everyday interactions. Okay. So Tom has the unenviable position of working both in Shanghai and New York. So he's always working. He works it early in the morning, late at night in the office. But I think we're an open office plan, right? We, we see all of our teams together. People are always moving around. Tom is actually sitting in his office right now and you can see the open office outside of it. I'm actually in a conference room. And so most of our day is actually just touching base with all of our team, touching base with our client, having design crits, engaging, collaborating. Much of our heads down work that we have to do is often done sort of after hours or in the morning because we do spend so much time engaged with the teams. We're a highly collaborative business. Working together, you know, you develop shorthand. Right. I know when to check in with Tom over certain issues and he knows when to check in with me over certain issues, but it also has to do with the team that we've put in place. So if we have a, a seasoned team that he and I have both worked with together, I often, they, if they're sitting next to me, he'll be meeting with the team and I can just be observing a little bit more remotely. But Tom, how would you build upon that? You know, there's a wide spectrum of activities that happen throughout any project, right? And there's instinctually, as well as just through experience, a clear enough idea of not only how Molly and I work together, but how a management partner and a design partner work together, that you know we do literally come together with our teams together often, but we also touch our teams independently. You know, when I have a moment to go talk about, you know, progressing the design, or Molly has a moment to go talk about how the schedule is being, you know, met. And we have enough of that trust and have done enough dances together that we can sort of ebb and flow with the team in that manner. Of course, 
at key moments, especially when things get tense or you know, there's an issue to be resolved, we do a huddle and we quickly get in the foxhole. And often that is just Molly and me going off to talk privately about what do we want to do here? This is a major issue. We need to come up with a good strategy and we need to get the team behind this. So how are we going to do that? So, you know, our working together occurs across that spectrum. I'm curious then, knowing that you both come from architecture and have now become partners, what have you learned from outside resources that have helped inform you? Like, what are your sources of go-to inspiration? You know, for some, it might be Harvard Business Review. It might be some other book on management. I'm just curious to know, like, how have you been able to incorporate other resources to help you think about whether it's management or strategy or leadership? I think one of the greatest resources is actually our peers. So we're members of the large firm roundtable, AIA committees, DEI groups. And one of the things that I think is so refreshing when you get to a senior leadership position, it's not just partners, it's any senior leadership position. People are really eager to share and support each other within the community. And I think that is so important. There's a, a question in the chat just to the panelists about how we transitioned from Polshek to ENIAD. And a lot of our peers have approached us over the you know, last 10 years about how did we do that? What has it been like? And I think that that's something that this is a difficult profession, right? It's very challenging. It can be long hours. The construction industry has not kept the pace of in innovation as quickly as every other industry out there. And so I think having that kind of peer-to-peer conversation has been incredible. It's validating. It's like, oh, I'm not the only one struggling with this. It's also empowering. Oh, excellent. We're doing much better than I thought we were doing. But then it's also inspiring to see how other firms are, are tackling some key issues. How would you consider um, your projects as a successful project? I mean, there's always on time and on budget, but it seems like there's a bigger context where with, with all your projects lie in the context of the community and the impact on the communities? Well, I think that's it, Sylvia, is really lasting impact across a spectrum of categories and criteria. Certainly for the building owner, building user, the institution, the, the people that are in the building, there hopefully is lasting impact of both large and small scale design ideas and solutions that really make their life in that building, whatever it is that they're doing, better. And, you know, that ranges from the academic environment and how one in the learning environment is so dependent on the physical built realm, right? And all the way to the lasting impact of how a building can inspire so many years later, you know, Rose Center 22 years later, and now the Shanghai Astronomy Museum, I hope, in 22 years, you still walk into those spaces and you get your breath taken away, right? That is, I think, the ultimate pinnacle of what I would consider a successful project. One of my favorite clients happens to be very smart. I will not name her by name, but I will say that we are on our fifth building for her. And when we were working on the first building, we asked her this question, how would you define success at the end of this project? And she said, if people are excited and asking and ready to do the next one. And she nailed it, right? If people 
are excited about what we just went through together. They live through a construction project. They're excited by the outcome and they're ready to do the next one. That's a win because you've won on all levels. And I just, I loved that response. I feel like that points to something that you're doing along the, throughout the client experience, that it's kind of an offshoot of that too. It's not just the, it's kind of underscored in, in our conversation that it's not just the, delivering it on on time, but there's this also idea of like being very clear and upfront and setting the right expectations and being very thoughtful about how you're going to approach and talk to them. I mean, there, there seems to be a lot of intention around how to work with clients in general that emanates from the partners, might not be dogmatic in a sense, it's not like written down, but it does feel like it's something that it's attuned by by the relationship you both have to each other, but also with the rest of the partners. And I'm curious about how does that translate? I guess some of the things that we talk about here is about the client experience in general. And like, what are the, the things that we should be attentive to throughout the, the journey of a client on a project? Like, is it even up to like the, how much information is in an email, right? Or like how much communication is enough? Or like how knowing as to what resolution one should be speaking to a client to help get them to the decision, is it safe to say that there is just a lot of thinking around that piece, the component around the client experience that leads to all this? And if so, I'm curious if there's anything that you've found that you do that is maybe maybe irregular or like unique or it's an outcropping of that thinking, right? That it's a, it's a direct outcome of thinking so deeply about how to provide the best experience for a client. I mean, to be honest, George, there is a kind of culture here of, clients, I don't want to say service, but it actually is, you know, client service. There's a culture here of client. And I think that's an outgrowth of the ENIAD, the fact that we're a group. And that because of that, it's not so much about me individually, right? And and that translates to, it's about you, the client, and you, the people that are using this building. So there is an ethos here that pervades all our work about that. Having said that, I do think you mentioned this, there isn't a kind of, there's no dogma. Stylistically, we each have our way of meeting that ethos, you know? And and it's really apparent when I work with Molly, who's got her style versus working with one of the other management partners, Don Weinert, for example, who's got a slightly different style, right? We all are all paying attention to the same goals and the same priorities, but we leave enough leeway that we're just able to be who we are. So that's sort of my take at what you're asking about. Maybe you can elaborate a little more too. One of the questions in the chat was, how do the partners work together? And since they all have different personalities, how do you make a collective decision as a group? Is there someone who has the final say or any more than anybody else? No. So I know there was another question too about how we, who partners work on which projects. I think it's important to say that we all cross collaborate. So I've worked with all the design partners. Tom has worked with all the management partners. And it's usually decided based on building typology, client relationship, you know, who's best suited to a project, whether it's a capacity issue, et cetera. So those decisions are made there. We are very much a collective. We still meet every Monday. We have lunch together. We make all our decisions collectively. 
that said, when you're running a 220 person firm, I don't need to make every decision. I don't need to be involved in every decision. And, and Tom alluded to this earlier. So we have subsets of the partners around different operational aspects of the firm. And we trust that subset of the partners to take care of that part of the firm. It's a operational issue. Any big issues that are brought back to the, the bigger table, recommendations are made. We've never, I think there's maybe been a vote once in the firm I heard historically, maybe it was around the main, name change, maybe not. But I think every other decision in the firm has always been made on a consensus basis. And that's not to say that we all always agree on every decision, but it is, it's very indicative of us working together as a collective and understanding that I might not agree with a particular decision, but I understand why the decision is being made. And if that is the, the will and the direction of the partnership, we're, we've all been in that position. And I think it's a, a great way of running it. That said, there's a lot of discussion about how it, do we continue to grow? And as our office in Shanghai grows, and as we consider other locations and presences, you know, will that evolve and change? I have no doubt it will, but I'm quite happy with the way it works right now. Just so everyone know, feel free to ask any questions in the Q&A or in the chat. I have another question around, it seems to me, I think, uh, Molly, you mentioned earlier in the beginning that these help centers, the way I think about them or the way they're in my head is like almost like there's a matrix organization at play where you have these services, right? Like these departments that are basically providing cross uh, project support in some capacity. I'm always curious about the technology piece in firms because, you know, as a technology company, it's really interesting. It was kind of like thinking about how's a technology stru company structured versus an architecture firm. And one question I have is around let's say the lessons learned from the technology team. So in other words, like I know there's like an applied computing group within ENEAD. How are those projects started? Is it inspired by a project or is it inspired by a strategic vision that's coming from the partnership or an opportunity that's like, hey, we, we should move into this area because in five years from now, like that's going to be a really interesting service that we can provide versus to maybe more like a, specific to a project, which might be more about optimizing a, a something specific to that, you know, a more bespoke solution. Our applied computing group is full of super geniuses and they, while the application of some of their work might vary from project to project, what we have built there is a body of knowledge and a methodology, um, some of which are actual tools that get applied specifically for certain issues that has become an incredible chassis for all of the work that everyone does on a daily basis. You know, and some of them are very simple solutions to common sort of mundane problems with Revit, for example. Others are super, you know, James Bond's Q, who comes up with the special tool, you know, that's going to solve all your problems. This watch that explodes. You know, those special tools also come into play or sometimes we'll go to that group and say, I have this problem. How are we going to fix this and how do we solve it? That kind of body of knowledge, hopefully we are able to capture so that we can spread it afterwards. And we have a lot of what we call STEM sessions or, you know, share this kind of studio expertise sessions. So if we come up with this Our geometry club, yeah, with a great new widget, this watch that explodes, gosh, let's show this to the whole office because this is really cool. 
But the other thing that we've done very recently is we actually have created a new position on the team called the ACE, the ACE position. And this underscores the importance of technology and how you deliver things. So when all these new programs started coming on, it was like, well, do we do it this way? Do it do this way? You know, what is the best tool to deliver something, whether it be a design presentation or a fabrication detail or a construction document? And so the ACE is put on each team now to advocate and help translate what the best tools are and to raise the flag and say, let's go touch base with applied computing. And by creating that position on each of our teams, we're saying, you got a project manager, you've got a project designer, you've got a project architect, you've got an ACE, you've got a, I mean, it just becomes another person. And, and I think if you name it, it underscores the importance of it. How did that position come about? Did it start with one team and then it was like such a great idea that you made it into the structure of all the teams? Because it sounds like a lot of things that you do a little differently than other firms, but then how do you get the buy-in and the long-lasting effect of it that it doesn't just end when the project ends? Sometimes it's just pure frustration, right? I mean, Tom mentioned Revit. Anyone who's worked with Revit, it can it can be frustrating, especially now when we are working, you know, BIM 360 and it's constant updates and all the consultants and now our CMs want access to it, our clients want access to it. So part of it is just necessity. The other thing I think that to underscore what Tom was saying earlier about project delivery and phases the integration of our work into the model has pushed decisions so much earlier than we ever used to have to make decisions, right? You used to just put two lines on mylar and you didn't know what that wall was made out of. Now you actually have to make those decisions so much earlier on. And so making sure that, so we're, we're finding that we have to put much more expertise on a project at a much earlier stage. And that's a little bit what's also going on with the technology. There's so many platforms to choose from. There's so many different moments to engage with different types of typologies that if you don't have someone who can actually advocate for making those decisions smartly, then you're going to find someone at six o'clock at night saying, I'm just going to do what's fastest for me right now because I got to get it done by six o'clock tomorrow morning. So that's, that's a big part of why we've, we've created this position. I don't actually know the answer to your question about how it first got formulated, um, but I have a guess that it came from our applied computing group, recognizing that this was a need. And I think they were the ones who who suggested it. And then we probably implemented it on a couple projects. And I'll get yelled at later for not knowing the answer to this. But <laughs> Okay. it's I, I think it's a, almost at that time where we get to ask a very special question here at Monograph. It's our favorite question. Kind of, for, it zooms out a bit uh, for us here. So the question is, What's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? We get all sorts of answers here. Feel free to, whether it's personal or at work, we get all sorts of answers. So maybe I'll start with you, Molly. This is a good question. So I'll make it a little personal. So I have 18-year-old twins, boy, girl. The last three years during COVID, high school, applying to college, managing an office during COVID, how do you all go to, I mean, there's just, there's been so much stress over the last couple of years. And I think the nicest thing that anyone has done for me have been all those little nice things. Let me do this for you. Can I bring you lunch? Can I take you out to dinner? Can I come and take, I mean, just those small things. I'm a type A person. I can take care of things, right? I know how to do it. And we all need help. And those moments when people come in and just say, they don't ask, they just do it. And it's, Honestly, it's been the nicest thing for me in the last couple of years. This is a hard question, George. And, and I like to think it's because there's just been a lot of 
you know, despite the challenge of the last 24 months, hopefully there's been in everyone's life a little glimmer of salvation and love. For me, it's, it's similar in the sense that my older son, who's an architect, went to Cornell Architecture School, actually worked here for a period of time, really could not stand work from home. He was on a computer. He's young. He's 26 years old. Thought that that was basically like the the job had devolved into me in a screen for 12 hours a day. And that was really tough for him. So, you know, he's been debating whether it's architecture or whether it's work from home. And one of the nicest things that anyone has ever done for me is a good friend of mine named Suchi Reddy, who you may know. And you should talk to her, by the way, because she's really hot these days. I asked her to just talk to him. So she went out to lunch with him and, you know, got him excited again. And that was great. Got him excited about not just, you know, what we do and design, but, you know, being part of New York and being part of the city and being part of, you know, making stuff. Mm. And now he actually works for her. So, <laughs> yeah, I was actually going to ask. And now he actually works. She's she's uh, sold him on on the job. Actually, that's what happened there. She was actually trying to close him to turn her. Well, uh, that wasn't. Can I, can I build? Can I build on that though? I mean, because I think it, it's funny you mentioned that because the, those are the nicest things that have been for me too in the last couple of years. And when people, family, friends have stepped in and taken my kids aside and brought them joy in a way that I couldn't do as their parent. And I think it's the same thing for practice, right? We talk about mentorship and you get a lot of mentorship on the project, but we all need mentorship outside of our projects. We all need mentorship outside of our partners because we need that. We need to be able to touch base with people who are within the field, but are not so personally connected with us because it can really rejuvenate you and it really can inspire you again. And I think, you know, back again, when I was talking about, being able to talk to peers, joining conversations like this, I really encourage it because, I mean, I'm going to go home today with a smile on my face because I've just been able to talk about what I love to do in a way that Tom and I don't normally get to do, right? Because we're solving problems and we're planning for the next day. So, uh, yeah, I'm, yeah. I, yeah, I really appreciate uh, both your stories. Yeah, especially for the last 24 months, it's been, I mean, our, our team made very strategic decisions about moving fully remote. And actually, Sylvia and I just met in person for the first time earlier this week. Wow. Um, we, we went to Boston to do a marketing offsite. And that was a very rejuvenating experience uh, because I, I have, as many audience members might know, I've been a talking head in this street uh, since I joined uh, basically the company. So, and it was great to meet, to meet Sylvia too and like dig deeper into what we're trying to do here. Sylvia, any parting words? Yeah, I definitely want to thank uh, Molly and Thomas um, so much for everything you shared with us. A lot of things you said like brought a smile to my face as well because it reminded me of the joy I had in architecture school, along with all the like long hours and nights. Like, there's something that sparks an interest and joy in you—the ability to create things and bring ideas to life—that definitely gets lost in the long days of like sitting at a computer, like you said, Tom. So I relate with your son, but I think doing things like this and then joining a company like Monograph really gets you back into that like creative mode where we wanted to make a change and wanted to like bring our ideas to life. So I loved hearing about that from both of you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so Thank you. much. For it's us. been really fun. Thank you, everyone. 
Hey, it's Sylvia from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. Monograph is designed for architects by architects. Over 450 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial or sign up for a demo today at monograph.com. Find out what a practice operations platform like Monograph can do for your firm. Get started at monograph.com. Talk to you soon.